And uh, this lady that I'm going to introduce to you, was that the first Theta Glenn? She's the first Eleanor I ever heard tell her story. And I sat about right there. Lee and I both did. And uh, all the time she talked, I cried. And uh, everything she said uh, helped me. And uh, Jack, I don't think is here right now. And uh, I met him out at Harrison Patsy the night before, and uh, he shook my hand, and he looked me right in the eye. And this was one thing that bugged me. I used to say, Lee, people never look you in the eye in the dark. You look down, or if you look at them, they look away. And this guy, uh, and you've met him, and you'll hear him, looks you right in the eye, and he smiles, and he's beautiful. And... Uh, I kept saying, you know, he's got a look. And I told him that at Cedar Glen in a Sunday morning. He came back in the kitchen and uh, he says, when you figure out what that look is, you let me know. And I know what it is today. Because this lady sitting here uh, has taught me and through living this program and walking it. Uh, she's helped me many times. Every time that I have had to take an inventory, to take a fifth step, and uh, I have to do it this way, or this is the way I start out, I take my fifth step with Lee because he's around and uh, he treats me like one of his babies. He, uh, he loves me and accepts me just the way I am. <laughs> And then, uh, lucky enough, that there's always a conference where usually my son is there and I can share this with her. And she tells me that uh, was right. There was one other time where uh, I was really hurting and we had some problems with our team. And uh, I was doing some things because people in A said this was the way to do it. And uh, she came along again to give her dele delegates report and she put her arm around me and she said, you keep on doing what you're doing. And uh, I needed to hear that at that time and the love that she has and all you people have. <coughs> so, I'm going to give you Marcy, who I love. Oh Isn't she beautiful? You know, Gloria, that it wasn't me that day. I know you know that. But for those of you here that might not know, let me tell you what it was. It was God within me reaching out to God within Gloria. The love that God is expressing itself from one person to another in this program. 
And that's what it's all about. Of course, when I got here, I didn't know that because I wasn't going to love anymore because I didn't want to be hurt anymore. It's sure good to be here. And I'm grateful that I got to be a first with your Kansas conference. And the people here are very, very special to me. And I'm just going to have to tell you that they make me better than I am. I just got to tell you that. <laughs> and I think that's one thing that we can do for each other in this program. Our faith in another person can make them whole. And your faith and your love in me makes me a better person and helps me to become whole. And each one of us in this room can do this for the new person coming in. They don't have the faith any more than we had the faith when we got here. But we can have it for them until they're able to have their own. And that's what it's all about. My name is Marcy White, and I'm an Al-Anon. I've been coming around over 16 years now. And there wasn't Al-Anon as such when I got here either. And I didn't like what I saw in the family group near as much as I liked what I saw in AA. And I knew that I wanted what the AAs had. And you know what I thought? I thought, I can't have it. I can't have it because I'm not an alcoholic. So I started in this program wanting to be an alcoholic. Now, isn't that strange? I didn't like my husband, and he was one. <laughs> but it took me a long time to figure this out. And because it took me so long to figure it out, I was a, I was a misfit. I loved the program, and I loved the meetings, and I loved the AAs, and I loved to hear them talk, and I identified with them. And I just wanted to be part of it. And you know, if you're not an alcoholic, you just can't be in there and go to those closed meetings. They just wouldn't let me in. And uh, I still felt like I was on the outside looking in. And um, I was doing my thing in Al-Anon, you know. I did everything they asked me to do. But somehow, somehow it wasn't enough. And this is what I figured out, and I'm, I'm saying this because I know there's some people that feel like I do, and this isn't talked about very much. Back there 16 years ago, Al-Anons didn't have what I wanted, where I was, but the AAs did. And if you're in a situation like that in your group, well, maybe... <coughs> 
maybe my experience in this can help you. I didn't know that I hadn't surrendered when I got here. I tried, but I didn't know how. I didn't know how to love and accept people like they were. I had to stick around long enough for you to help me and show me. Things that happen to AAs usually within the first few months or year of their sobriety, I did not have until I had been in the program for about five years. My life was on the on the outside, my life was great. I had all the things that I thought I needed to make me happy. Did you ever think if my husband or my wife just gets sober and quits drinking that everything will be all right? If that boss will just straighten up over there and get off my back, everything will be all right? Well, I had all these outside things that I thought if, 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 if I got them fixed up, everything would be all right with me. And I got them. Everything wasn't all right. My insides weren't all right. My outside circumstances were great, but my inside didn't feel good. And I thought, you know, if I had these things, my insides would feel good too. But I was still hurting. I was still pretty miserable. And I think one of the things that helped me the most was just doing what the program said do. Just to just as best I could. I started trying to be of service. I started trying to help. When anybody asked me to do something, I try to do it. I was willing. And Along the line, I started learning a little bit about love, and I found out that for me, my purpose here was to accept people like they were, with no criticism, no judgment, and love them for free. When I started doing this, you know what happened? I started fitting in. I started belonging. I started to be a part of rather than apart from. And my life changed. And I had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that was my rebirth. And from that time on, my life has been a great adventure. I had a living problem all of my life. I've had a lot of alcoholics in my family and around me. My father was an alcoholic. My husband, my brother-in-law, an ex-son-in-law, and a niece. And I needed this program all my life. 
But I was so walled up and so sick in my self-righteousness and my self-pity and myself and my ego that when I got here, I couldn't hear you. I began to feel you a little bit, but I couldn't hear you. And slowly, this love that we've been talking about started getting to me, breaking down these walls and these barriers that I had built up so that I never would get hurt again. It's amazing to me still the power in this program the powerlessness that I had all of my life and then to come here and the power is added. The big book says that lack of power was our dilemma and it surely was mine. I never knew how to handle situations. I always felt inadequate. I never felt like I belonged. I never felt good inside. There was always something lacking. In all of my life, there was a, a dis-ease and a restlessness. And I kept thinking, is this all there is? Isn't there something more? Probably the difference in me and you, the alcoholic, was I had all the inner feelings and all the inner turmoil somehow. But I was too chicken to go ahead and rebel. I conformed resentfully. And you know what? I found out this makes you sick. <coughs> it makes you sick. And I didn't even know when I got here that I was sick. I didn't even know that I needed you. And when I had a little awakening and a little moment of truth, you know, that comes into our consciousness every now and then, and bang, we see ourselves as we really are, it scared me to death. It scared me to death. I almost didn't make this program, and I guess I better go back a little bit and tell you about that. Bob, my husband, who is here, was an alcoholic when we married. We both know that now. And for 15 years, I did everything that I knew to do to change this man, to make him shape up and fly right, and to make him do this and do that. And I did everything that anybody's ever thought of, and then some, I think. I lied for him, I covered up for him, I drank with him, I played with him, I scolded him, you name it, and I did it. And after 15 years of this, not only had I lost all respect for this man that I had idolized and I had looked to as my God. You know, I heard somebody say not too long ago 
If you want to know what your God is, or who your God is, just ask yourself, what do I spend the most time thinking about? Where is my real love? What do I want the most, and what do I spend the most time thinking about and active in? And whatever it is, that's your God. I was consumed by my husband. I spent all of my waking hours thinking about him in some way. I couldn't be a person. I never thought about anything except... uh, where he was going and what he was doing and if he came home and he was high and everything was happy well you know I was right up there with him and when he went down into depression and you know how they do I was right down there with him I was controlled by him now I'm not saying that this was his fault because I have found out in this program that when the big book says our problems are basically of our own making and we come to know that we are responsible for the sorry state of our affairs this means me too it's not just talking to the alcoholic but this was my sickness this was my alanonism and it's very cunning and baffling too And you can't put your finger on it, you know, like you can the alcoholic, because you can't smell us. (laughs) But it's there. It's really there. And it took me years to see this. Five years in the program before I could see my insanity before I could see my sickness because I was so consumed in looking at Bob's that I couldn't see mine. And you know, when someone is your God and you take over trying to play God to them and run their lives and think that you know what they ought to be saying and doing 24 hours a day, how are you going to have time to do anything else or know about you? And that's the way it was with me. In these 15 years that we were married and Bob Frank, as I've told you, I lost my respect for him. And I had idolized him and worshipped him. And you know, the good book says that thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in this program, I came to know what that meant. And anything that I ever put up there on the top shelf before God, I was going to have to surrender. I was going to have to give it up. And maybe, just maybe, I found out that if I could surrender it, and if I could give it up, God might give it back to me again. I had left Bob before A.A. found him. I had given up (coughs) in despair and hopelessness and helplessness 
and I didn't want any part of him or his family. I had marked them all off of my list because they had all hurt me and nobody understood me and I was going to go it alone. Oh, I was tough. I was going to go it alone. I didn't need anybody because I could not depend on anybody. Bob had been sober two months in the program of AA before I saw him. And I had thought that he was going to a mental institution, and you know what? I was just tickled to death. Isn't that horrible? Isn't that horrible? I was relieved. I thought, I'll know where he is, and he won't he won't be a bother to me anymore. He was more trouble than my three children. I say mine. You know, he did have something to do with it. <laughs> but they were my responsibility, and I so they were mine. They weren't, they weren't ours. And that's just the way I always thought. He's more trouble than my three kids put together. And in some ways... Um, he was more immature, but in some ways I was too. And I, I just got fed up. I just got sick of it. There wasn't any money. There wasn't any communication. There wasn't any love. There was nothing. There was nothing left to go on for. So I decided I'm going to get out of it. I'm going to leave. And I wrote, he, he, Bob was a running drunk, and he'd go off, you know, to town to go to the office or to make a big deal. And uh, he, might, uh, he might be gone two or three weeks. He might be gone two or three months. And uh, the news had trickled back to me. He was in Jackson. We lived in Denver, Colorado, and he had gone to Jackson, Mississippi to make a big deal. And uh, he stayed two months to make his big deal. And the news trickled back to me that uh, he wasn't making any big deal down there, that he was laying up in the hotel drunk. And that's all he'd done since he'd been there was lay up in the hotel drunk. So I thought, this is a good time to get out. You know, I don't know whether you all have been this way or not, but Bob, the alcoholic could always con me into doing anything that he wanted me to do. I was not my own person at all. He just played with me and manipulated me and used me, and I was just like a puppet on a string, you know. And um, I knew that if I faced him and saw him, he'd probably talk me right out of it. So I thought, I'll make my getaway. I'll have a runaway. <laughs> and I'll do this while he's gone, and it'll be easier this way. Because by this time, I was suspicious of how I really was. And I was sort of one of these uh, Mrs. Milk Toast sort of characters that didn't have the courage or the guts to do anything. I took the softer, easier way. I played the game, peace at any price. So I just uh, I just moved out. We didn't have anything to move out very much. We hopped all of our furniture. 
and he didn't have a job. We owed everybody. We were behind on everything, and they were, I think they were about to move us out anyway. But um, I sold a piano and a television set that were already hot to the mortgage company to get the money to move. And I went home to mother at the age of 35, just like the alcoholic goes home to mother. I went home to mother, too, because there wasn't anybody else that would have me. There wasn't anybody else that wanted me, and I don't blame them, because I, I wasn't anything to be wanted. I didn't have anything that anybody would want. And I was so determined that I would never <coughs> see him again that I would never have anything to do with him. I had cut him out of my life. And you know what happened? The day that I got to my mother's house, he called me on the telephone, and he was there in Midland, Texas, where I was. And I thought he was in the nut house. I was appalled that there he was when I had done all of these elaborate things to get rid of him. <laughs> and... Um, he told me that he'd been, that he wasn't drinking. I, he didn't tell me he was sober in AA. He said he wasn't drinking. And he said, I'd like to come out and see you. I promise you that's the last thing I wanted to do for him to come out and see me. But he conned me into it before I knew what was going on. <laughs> and there he was. And you know, this had to happen to me because... I had to see him before I could begin to believe in miracles. This man was different. Not only did he look different, his physical appearance was, was amazing. The bloat and the redness was gone from his face. His hair was not half as gray as it had been. He looked different. But the main thing was, I knew he was different inside. I, I didn't know how to cope with this. You know, we get used to lots of things in life, and I had learned, I had conditioned myself to cope with the way he was. But I was not ready for this new person that presented himself to me. Every time we had... Um, had trouble, and that was constantly. Um, he had always told me, you know, that he couldn't get a job. That, and the first thing he did was he told me he had a job. And he had gone to work for the company as a salesman that he used to own, that he had lost. And this wasn't like this man, this proud, arrogant man. It was not like him to do this. And we always argued about I was going to leave and I was going to divorce him and I couldn't take any more. And you know what? He didn't argue with me. In fact, he didn't even let me tell him I was going to do that. He beat me to it and he said, I want to tell you something. If, uh, if you want a divorce, I don't blame you. I'll do anything I can to help you. I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. And I said, well, um, I don't think I want to make a decision right now about that. <laughs> and he, um, he said, um, I, want to, I want to give you some money 
For years we've been arguing over money. And I wanted him to give me some, and he didn't have any to give me. And I wanted money, you know, to do those things like buying groceries and paying the rent, paying the bills. And he wanted to go play and run and drink on. And he offered, I didn't even have to ask him, he offered it to me. And you know what I did? I accepted his offer, and I took it, and I moved into an apartment, and I left him out in the cold. And he, he was, I can't remember exactly what salary he was making, but I know that all he kept was $100, and he gave us, I think, $400 a month to live on, maybe 500 And this was a new man. He had become a new creature. But you know what? I was afraid to believe it. And you know why? Because I thought, I'll get hurt again. If I believe this, I'll get hurt again. And I didn't think I could stand to get hurt again. So I moved in the apartment and left him out. And about this time, the AAs started dropping by, and the wives would drop by, and they would tell me how well Bob was doing. And I'd say, that's fine. And I would smile, you know. I was still playing my little games. But inside, this is what I was thinking. Well, it's just about time that he's doing something. That sorry, no good so-and-so. <laughs> they kept after me for about a month. And all they did was love me. All they did was try to give to me what had been given to them. They tried to share with me, but I could not accept it. And I kept everybody out here. And I was in my lonely little world all by myself. But I was safe. I was in my cocoon of darkness. But I wasn't going to get hurt anymore. But I tell you, it sure was lonely. And it sure wasn't living. The, the only way that I could have ever gotten to an AA meeting because of my pride and my self-righteousness and because of my sickness was that they tricked me into going. I could have never said after I had made this firm stand that I would go. So they tricked me into going. His sponsor called and invited me to dinner. And he had been to my house so many times and had been so nice to me, I got to feeling so guilty for the way I had treated him that I just conformed resentfully one more time and said, okay. I didn't want to go. I got there, and there were Bob's three sponsors. He really says he has one, but there were the, the three men were there that went to call on him that made a 700-mile round trip to carry him the message of hope. And their three wives were there. And I was amazed that they were nice people. I don't know what I thought y'all were, but I didn't, I didn't want to go. I didn't, I didn't want any part of you. And um, I couldn't get over these nice people. And I found myself, you know, having a good time. And I didn't, I didn't intend to have a good time. 
But there I was, and I was caught up in this and having a good time, but I didn't want to. It was against my will because I was being a martyr for me. Look what, look what he's done to me. Look how he's hurt me. And after about an hour and a half in this lovely dinner, and they really put out the red carpet for me, you know, they said, by the way, we're all going to a meeting. Wouldn't you like to go? Well, no, I didn't want to go to a meeting, but what do you do? And I said, okay, and I went. And I would have never gone any other way. This is what I wanted to tell you, that I just barely got here. I just almost missed this program. But do you know that I didn't look at this or see this because I shut it out? I didn't want to see me as I was. I it was too much for me, and so I just put it back and shut it out for four or five years in the program. After about six weeks, and I went to meetings sometimes, I liked what I saw, I liked what I heard, and I liked what I felt. I loved it from the very start, but you know why I didn't want to go? I was afraid they would talk me into taking him back. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. Self-will run right is what we call that. I was still running my own life, and it was a dismal failure. After six weeks and some conversations, we decided to start over. And we did something that I did not realize the value of, and I'm sure that Bob didn't either. And this was God in action in our lives. God was doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And Bob had a program that he was living and trying to follow. And I didn't have a program in my life. So he was the strong one that made the first steps and made the amends. And he did for me the things that had to be done for me so that I could open up and start changing inside. We talked over all the things that had bothered us. Now, I want you to know that we'd never done this before in this way. It was impossible for us to communicate. When I would start telling him about things that he did that I didn't like, well, he would start defending himself or jumping on me, and I'd start crying, and he'd start yelling. And so the, the best communication, which isn't communication, but all we had was I would cry and he would holler. <laughs> but this was different this day. And this was the new person again that I could not believe or accept. And this new person was telling me all the things that he had done that he was sorry for. And after he told me everything that he knew that he had done that he was sorry for, then he asked me to tell him some more. In other words, he just opened himself up and said, let me have it. And boy, I gave it to him. <laughs> I lambasted him with everything that I ever held way down in here that I thought I never could forgive and I never could forget. And you know what? He didn't defend himself. 
He didn't holler. He sat there, and he listened, and he took it. And he started explaining to me why he had been this way and why he had said this and done this. And I couldn't believe it because he had changed. And then after we had gotten that over with, and I tell you, I admired him. I couldn't help but admire him. And I respected him for this because I knew that it was not the way he had been. And after he had done this, and he had set the tone for the whole meeting, then he started telling me the things that I had done that he didn't like. And you know what? I had to take it, too, because I couldn't let him show me up. (laughs) So I took it. Now, the big book talks about we clear away the wreckage of our past. Well, we have to clear away the wreckage of a past marriage before we can begin again. We have to wipe the slate clean. And I know that this that God did this for us because we could not do it for ourselves. And there is no way with the mixed up, messed up 15 years that we had had that we could have ever reconstructed a marriage on a firm foundation if we had not done this first. If you're married and you have not done this, it isn't too late. Please do it. There are better ways and means than we did it, but it was necessary for us and we did it, and we could not have started over. And then we both had our program to live and try to follow. And as I told you, it was five years before anything happened to me so that I could wake up and see my sickness and myself and be able to effect the change that was necessary through the 12-step program of recovery. I wish I had time to tell you about my spiritual experience, but the time is running short, and I won't go into that. But from this, and it came from pain. I never did anything in this program until I had to. I never did it until I was hurting so bad inside that I had to take another step. And I had to do, I had to go to somebody and let the wall down and the barrier down and say, I don't know how to take a fourth step. Will you help me? Will you tell me how? I, I just couldn't let people know how inadequate I was inside because I thought if you really knew, you wouldn't love me. And I didn't know that you would love me if you really knew how I felt inside. But I started exposing myself just a little bit here and a little bit there. You know what I found out? People love me more. You know, I've never been able to feel very close to somebody that I had up there on the pedestal that I thought was perfect because you can't communicate. It's these feelings that we begin to share with each other when we start opening up our insides to each other that we really love each other because we know we're alike. Deep down, we're all alike. 
I discovered that there's not one answer for me, the Al-Anon, and another answer for you, the alcoholic. We've got the same answer. When the alcoholic comes in, the first thing they have to do is quit drinking, put down the bottle. And the first thing the Al-Anon has to do if they want this program of recovery to work in their life is to let go of the alcoholic. So we both have to give up something when we get here. And then when we give up the most important thing in our life, then we are ready to take certain steps. And these five years, I had never been willing to go to any lengths to get this program. I wanted it on my terms and my way. But after this five-year period, and I had my awakening, I knew that I had to get with this program. God let me know in no uncertain terms that if I wanted what you had to offer, then these were the steps I took, not steps that Bob took or anybody else took, but these were the steps I took if I wanted what you had to offer. I realized that I had been playing with the program. I had been toying with the 12-step program of recovery. And I was still doing it for Bob, and I was still trying to get him fixed up. And I had some moments of truth before this, but this was, this was the first real one that changed me. And from then on, I knew what the first three steps of the program really meant at depth. And from that time on, I never got out of bed in the morning until I had taken the first three steps of this program. And I not only admitted that I was powerless over an alcoholic, I did that before I got here, but I admitted that I was powerless over a sober alcoholic, that I was powerless over my children, that I was powerless over my life, that I was powerless, period, over everything. And my life would remain unmanageable as long as I tried to run it. And I came to believe that night for the first time, really feel and know that God would and could restore me to sanity, yes, to sane thinking, to peace and order and harmony. And this affair of my marriage that was out of order, that he could restore this. And I come to believe every morning that God is doing this for me. That he is doing everything for me that I can't do for myself. And I turn it all over to him. And I not only turn my life and my will over to the care of God as I understand him, but I enumerate some things that make it more personal for me. And I give him my thoughts, my stinking thinking. I give him my desires. I give him my ambitions. I give him my children, and I give him my problems. And I just try to stay open, and I try to stay willing to listen and to know what his will is for me. And to ask for the power each morning to carry it out. And you know what happened then? 
I started getting well. I started having fun. I started really belonging, and I started getting with it, and everything got real groovy. Outside circumstances sometimes were worse because now I was a new person, and Bob didn't know what to do with me. (laughs) And I started saying things that hurt him because heretofore I had put up a front, and I had a wall up, and I had acted and performed as I thought he wanted me to. And when I really did this, and I really released him with love, and started loving him for free, and I turned him over to God, and I knew there were things for me to do in this. And when I did this, you know he didn't want me to. He was so used to me tending to him that he didn't know what to do either. So we had a hard time for a while. And I remember that he thought, he thought I didn't love him anymore. And I was loving him for the first time the way the program was telling me to do. But it was different, and so he thought I didn't care. He thought I didn't love him. But this was the beginning of a new experience, not only in my life, but a new experience in our marriage and a new adventure in living. And it got to be a challenge, and it got to be fun to give it all to God, but to do the things in this program that it teaches us to do and just sit back and watch God work. To see him go before you to straighten out the crooked places. To see him change somebody's heart and somebody's attitude because yours is right. When I got my side of the street clean, things started changing in my outside circumstances. And my insides felt good for the first time in my life. The big book tells us that we were put here in this world to play the role that he assigns. And Gloria, I think they're talking about God. (laughs) (laughs) We're put here in this world to play the role that he assigns. And just to the extent that we feel that we're able to do this and humbly rely on him, God, Does he allow us to match calamity with serenity? And this is what I'd wanted. This is what I had wanted. And all I had to do was to fit myself to his service, to be a maximum service to him and my fellow man, to listen to his directions and his will for me. And it'd work out. The big book also says both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. And if you persist, remarkable things will happen. It doesn't say maybe, it says will happen. When you look back, you will see that the things which happened to you when you put yourselves in God's hands were far better than anything you could have planned. Follow the dictates of your higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world. This is my all-in-all story. This is what happened to me when I became willing to surrender. 
And when I became willing to get into those steps and dig, just like the alcoholic, Al-Anon is for the people that want it, not for the people that need it. And please don't call everybody that's a spouse of an alcoholic and Al-Anon. That's just a slap in the face. When you start living this program and you're a practitioner of this program and you you listen for God's direction and you attend meetings and you become a new person, that is far different from being the spouse of the South. <laughs> and Al-Anon's have gotten a lot of black eyes and they deserved them, some of them from AAs and we're not always understood and that's all right. And But I think one of the things that all of us can do is to not call people Al-Anon's if they aren't. They're the wife or the husband of an alcoholic or an AA member, but unless they are living this program and applying it in their life and attending meetings, they're not Al-Anon's. And this, this would help if each of us would always remember to not call people Al-Anons if they aren't. I think that we would, uh, we might have a facelifting if we'd all agree to do this. And Al-Anon might really be known as what we really are rather than taking all of the blows. I would hate for people to have thought that the way I did and acted before I got to this program was anything like Al-Anon. It would be so embarrassing for Al-Anon. So let's, let's keep it pure and let's keep it true and just call people Al-Anons that are. And I think that each of us, it's just because we don't know what else to call them. Just call them Mary or Jane or something. Just don't call them an Al-Anon. There have been so many beautiful, exciting experiences that have happened to be able to, to stand by and watch God in action through the program. And I think one of the most beautiful things that happened to me was my father. I told you in the beginning that my father was an alcoholic. I never understood him. I didn't love him. I didn't know how. I don't think he knew how to love me. I never knew what to expect. My life was never on an even keel. And when he was drunk, usually he would say things and tell me he loved me and give me things that I knew he didn't have any business giving me. Or maybe he'd be, I wouldn't call sober, I wouldn't say he was sober, but when he was dry, He'd be uptight, I know now, and he'd, I'd think he was mean, and I'd think he was ugly, and I'd think he didn't love me, and he didn't care, and he'd holler and fuss and say, get the hell out of here and be quiet and stuff like that. And I got hurt because I didn't understand. And I never understood my father, but I've just got to tell you, I grew up hating him. I 
had this hate within me that was killing me. And then we come into the program of AA, and I start reading about alcoholics and how they feel and how they are, and I started listening to them talk. And just like that, I knew, that's what's the matter with my daddy. He's an alcoholic. I tried to talk to him a time or two. I even connived a little bit, you know, and got him to a few meetings. And he said, well, it's better than going to preaching. you got to go someplace, and it's fine for those that need it, you know, but he just didn't need it. And so you told me what to do again. The program told me what to do. I started praying for my daddy. And I don't think a day went by for eight years that I didn't say some kind of prayer for my daddy. Now, sometimes I was so uptight and I still had these things inside till I couldn't even mean it, but I did it anyway. And if I couldn't do anything but just say, God bless daddy, well, I'd do that. And then sometimes I had a little more insight and a little more feeling toward him, and I could, I could really pray for him. And most of the time, my prayer was, God, please, in some way, somehow, let somebody help my daddy. He needs it so bad. And during this time, you know what happened? I started loving him. The resentments were gone, and I started loving him, and I I felt good about him. And everything was all right inside me, and that's where it counts. How are you feeling inside And then one day, God saw fit that I was in the right place at the right time when my daddy asked for help. And I never, never thought that he would let me be a part of the help for my father. This was beyond my wildest dreams, like the big book said. But God gave me this precious gift. And he let me see my father that night, and it was a party. And I'd just, just come home to Midland from Lake Whitney, where we had been. And I didn't want to be there again, but my mother had kept my children while I was gone. And I, when she asked me to come to the party, I knew I'd better go. And that's the only reason I was there. If, it, if I had had anything to do with it, I wouldn't have even been there. But I was there, and he, I never saw him. He, you know, he took drunk before the guests came, and he'd already passed out, but he'd done the barbecuing, and the guests took over. And I heard this fall on the porch, you know, and my first reaction was to jump up and go help him. I knew he'd fallen. I knew he was drunk, and I knew he'd fallen, and I thought he's probably hurt himself. But I saw a couple of the fellows get up and go, and I remembered then that it always embarrassed my father for me to see him drunk. So I'd just be quiet and stay out of the picture. And I never intended to see him that night, but I walked in the house. We were It was a backyard party, and I walked in the house to get my children's things, and there he was in this living room walking back to his pig pen, that we called it. And... Um, <coughs> 
my, if this, had, this was not me now, I want you to know that this was not me. I could not have done this. This was God working through me. Because of myself, I would have been quiet and I wouldn't have said anything because I knew it would have embarrassed him. And, and when I saw him drunk and in this condition, I just didn't say anything because I didn't want to hurt him anymore. But God said this through me. Hi, Daddy. How are you? I sure had a good time at your party, and I love being here, and i got to go home now. He was dirty, and he was unshaven, and he was stinking, and he blinked his eyes and shook his head and said, and saw me, and said, uh, where have you been? I said, well, I've been off to the lake, and just came home and enjoyed the party and it was good to see everybody and I got to go home now. And he said, come here. I want to talk to you. He'd never done this. And he put his arms around me and he carried me back to his pig pen. And that was his drinking room that he never let mother or I go in to clean up. He hid all his bottles there. And he put his arms around me and he started crying like a baby. And he started telling me how sorry and no good he was. And I can't tell you what it did for me that from my insides I could say, Daddy, no, you're not. You're not sorry and no good. You're sick. And I love you, Daddy. And I know some people that can help. Will you let me call? He was in his pig pen. And I think his inside said, I will arise and I will go to my father. And he let me call. And A.A. came. And I think that they loved him sober. They cared for him. They did for him. My daddy was 73 years old. And he was sick. And they stayed with him around the clock, two or three days and nights. And they'd stop by and they picked him up and they started taking him to meetings. And what I was too sick to see happen to my husband. I could not accept or see the miracle of God in action through people to my husband. I saw in my father, and it was beautiful. We started communicating. I saw the fears leaving. I saw him start caring for people. I saw him start loving and having an interest. And I gave him some books, AA books. And we'd read the 24-hour book together every morning, and we'd call on the telephone and have a conversation about what it said. And we, he talked about people and how well they were doing and how he enjoyed them. My daddy stayed sober about a year. And he... He did not do all of the things that this program requires us to do for sobriety. 
I don't know why. It doesn't matter. Maybe there was too much water under the bridge for him, and maybe it was too tough to go back and clear away the wreckage of the past. But I saw God change him, and I saw him become a new person in God. And it was beautiful. My daddy started drinking again because he had not done all of the things that the program requires. And the stinking thinking returned, and he started drinking a little beer, you know. Um, well, I feel bad. He had a leg injury, and he was laid up, and he couldn't make meetings. And he felt bad, and a few beers wouldn't hurt. You know what I mean? A few beers wouldn't hurt. The insanity of alcoholism had returned in his life. And pretty soon he graduated to vodka. And my father died a practicing alcoholic. But he had had a change, and I know it, and I felt it, and I saw it. And I can't tell you what it meant to me that I could be there and see it and be a part of it. And I can't tell you what, how I would have felt if my father had never had a chance at this program. He had been given his chance, and I had been given mine, and you had been given yours. And because he had had his choice and his chance, I was at peace. And I knew my father was at peace. And I just don't know how I knew. I just knew that my father died at peace with God. And when I knew he was gone, the first thought I had was, It's all right, Daddy. You don't have to drink anymore. So you can see why. I love this program so. Not only has it given me a new life and a new hope and a new love and a new courage, but it taught me how to love and forgive my earthly father so my heavenly father could love and forgive me. And I love you, and God bless you, and thank you. Thank you, Marceline. I think I love you for being here.